Sometimes, sometimes when I preach a challenging sermon about some ethical issue, some social injustice, some threat to our democracy, a degradation of our beautiful earth home, sometimes someone will respond. A coffee hour, receiving line, or maybe later by email. Clyde, do you really believe people will care? And I say, yes, I, I do. And my interlocker will express doubt. People, people never change, Clyde. People never change. Of course, that about captures one of our biggest challenges facing Unitarian Universalism in this age, in this time where the media has inculcated into us a deep cynicism about our ability to change about our ability to make any difference in the world. We are just small, small cogs in this big machine that will seem to go on and on. People will never change, we are told, over and over. A lack of faith in the potential of human beings and in the power of people, the power of people to be peacemakers on the capacity of love to overcome hate in response of people to do justice to overcome wrong. But we're told over and over again, it's the way it is. It's too big. People will never change, they tell me. So let me tell you a story. In 1948, most of our congregations and houses of worship in the United States are Unitarian Universalist houses of worship as well. We're segregated. Most. We're segregated. Separation of the people of color from members uh, on the basis of people's skin. Some were segregated by law. Some were segregated by custom or by lack of activity to welcome and include all people. They were separated. The First Unitarian Church of Chicago was one of those congregations, although I suspect there were some closer to here. I will pick on Chicago. <laughs> and although the church was located in a neighborhood with many, many African Americans, only whites could join, and that was written in the bylaws of the church. At the same time, this was after World War II against a war that was fought about massive prejudice against Jewish people. People were becoming aware there was the desegregation of the armed forces in that year. So people were beginning to say, why do we have such bylaws? Maybe it's wrong. They wanted to overcome this segregation in their community and then first of all in their church. They wanted to live their values and principles. The minister at that church, the Reverend Leslie Pennington, was ready to take action. And so was James Luther Adams, who was a member of the Board of Trustees of the congregation. And Adams taught at the Meadville Theological School, which was 
conveniently across the street from First Unitarian Church in Chicago. And from the, and he was a member of the congregation's board of directors, the standing committee of the First Unitarian Church of Chicago. In other words, he was a leader of the congregation. And along with some others, Reverend Pennington, James Luther Adams, proposed a change in the church's bylaws, asking to remove that clause that required legal separation in the church to welcome people whatever the color of their skin. They wanted to include, not exclude. They wanted to, this to be to put their love into action, to put their principles into action. When the Congregation's Board of Directors considered the desegregation proposal, most of the members of the board supported it. However, one member of the board had objected, objected strongly, and that created a little bit of conversation in the board, a lot of conversation in the board. His argument was that your proposal is making desegregation into a creed. We're a creedless church. You're asking everyone in our church to say they believe in desegregation or inviting and even recruiting non-white people to attend our church. And you were saying that we're supposed to believe that's a good way to tackle racism. What if some members don't believe that? That would make a statement of belief. We're Unitarians. We don't all believe alike. Now, in 1948, desegregation was a very controversial topic. In 1948, anything, anything, any conversation about racism and skin color and Everything about that, that question of me was controversial. Is this the right time, some church members argued, to, is this it when everybody else is doing it, we're going to do it first? And the First Unitarian Church of Chicago was engaged in a debate and conversation but most members over the time began to support the change in the bylaws. The proposal, of course, began in the, when it comes to the board of directors, the meeting couldn't reach a conclusion. It went on and on and on. Have you ever been to a meeting like that? It was on and on. It was actually after midnight. After midnight, they'd been discussing this for several hours that evening. And everyone, everyone was exhausted, frustrated, even a little angry. And finally, James Luther Adams asked the person who was voicing the strongest objection, what do you say the purpose of this church is? What, do you, what, what is this church? What is it? What does it stand for? What is this church for? Everyone in that board meeting was quiet. 
Everyone was thinking, and everyone was waiting for the answer to that question. And after many minutes of, of quiet, that board member who had opposed the opening of the church about changing of the bylaws, he spoke. He spoke. And he said these words. Okay, Jim. James Luther Adams, Jim. Okay, Jim. The purpose of this church is to get hold of people like me and change them. Do you ever think of that? First Unitarian Church Society of, of Chicago was successfully seg desegregated. It became a leader in Chicago in making this move for overcoming housing covenants and all kinds of legal barriers. That was significant, but together, The members, through dialogue and struggle and work, had discovered the purpose of being church. The purpose of being church. Unitarian Universalists are communities that witness justice, peace, and the caring to the world. And to do that means that we invite people into the process of growth. Spiritual growth that opens our hearts, relational growth that expands our circle of care, growth in understanding that expands our comprehension of what to do and how we can make a difference. One of the ways this congregation and thousands of other congregations have engaged in helping people make transformative change has been the campaigns called Standing on the Side of Love. As a faith tradition, sometimes the origins of our practices gets lost to history because we fail to record them. This is particularly unfortunate when it comes to our best practices. So who really knows who first said the phrase, standing on the side of love in relationship to the struggle for marriage equality. But what we do know, because it was recorded, is that in 2004, a young Unitarian Universalist minister, uh, young Unitarian Universalist music director named Jason Shelton, heard then UUA president Bill Sinkford say, we stand on the side of love as a talking point for a press release he was writing after then President George W. Bush advocated for a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. Massachusetts was at the peak of its own battle for marriage equality at the time, and Jason was in Boston working on the creation of what would become our teal hymnal, Singing Our Journey, Singing the Journey. Jason says that he had this intense reaction when Bill said that asking if he could take notes. He then proceeded to write the entire chorus of that famous hymn right then and there on his notepad. We are standing on the side of love 
hands joined together as hearts beat as one, emboldened by faith, we dare to proclaim we are standing on the side of love. Genius, genius in action. Jason would recall, it was just this profound, like the song was there, like the song was in the room. It was in the halls of the UUA, and I just wrote it down. A short while later, he would play the music for the chorus on the piano at the UUA's former Pickett and Elliott house. And over the next few years, the song would become popularized in relationship to the fight for marriage equality. Yet it would take a pivotal and tragic event for the fuller prophetic and pastoral significance of this phrase and hymn to be witnessed within our faith tradition. On Sunday, July 27, 2008, a gunman entered and opened fire in the sanctuary of the Tennessee Valley Unitarian Universalist Church in Knoxville during a children's performance of the play Annie. Two adults were killed and several others were wounded, though thankfully no children were physically injured. The gunmen had deliberately targeted the church for its liberal beliefs, which included its support of the LGBTQ community, as well as a long history of anti-racism and fighting for desegregation in the South. The church's minister, Reverend Chris Busey, would repeatedly preach on the theme of love surmounting hate throughout that year in the aftermath, including explicit references to his understanding of God is love, which reflects our universalist theological heritage. Shortly after the shooting, in August of 2008, the UUA would place a full-page ad in the New York Times affirming our intent to stand on the side of love by keeping the doors of our congregations open and by not giving in to fear. Then at the 2009 General Assembly, which you, that which you, um, what you now know as the Interfaith Standing on the Side of Love public campaign was formally launched, honoring the recovery and resistance work done in the aftermath of the Knoxville shooting. The Standing on the Side of Love public campaign remains a deep source of witness to our faith in action not only for marriage equality, but also for immigrant rights, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement today. The media and others have dubbed us the love people when we show up in our yellow t-shirts and with our banners. Jason Shelton, the composer of our hymn, would comment on his own awe that the words of his song continue to respond with their own relevance and meaning for each new issue of justice in which they are lifted up. So what is this transformative and powerful faith that we stand by and sometimes die for in our history? I want to close with, one of the, word, with the words of one of the congregants from Knoxville that I was grateful to have an opportunity to interview for my dissertation. This congregant spoke to the powerful impact the response by his fellow congregants and the larger UU and interfaith community had on deepening his understanding of the power of his Unitarian Universalist faith. As a leader in the church's UU evangelical group, 
that had been involved in spinning off and planting new, new, new UU churches. It spun off an enormous number of UU churches. This congregant had questioned, along with others, if Unitarian Universalism in itself was actually a faith. A particular legacy was left when he and others in his group read Michael Durrell's critique of Unitarian Universalism as the almost church, a church that was more consumeristic in orientation rather than really possessing soul, a soul that was transformative and deep. This congregant would say the response to the trauma, quote, bonded us all together as a community. And I think it made me think about the faith. We had discussions at the evangelist, evangelist saying, quote, it's unclear that Unitarian Universalism is a faith. Michael Durrell had said, it's kind of an overstatement to call us a faith. We read the Almost Church a couple of years before the shooting, and there's some thought about that. Are you really a faith? I think something came out in the UU world asking, is UU, Unitarian Universalism, really a faith? And I think for us, it was like, well, yeah, you know, it is. And it can really be a helpful faith in times of crisis. The messaging came out of our spiritual values, pulled us all together, got us through this, and deepened our faith. Because basically, it came down to love and service. You know, realizing that that's at the core and caring about each other and doing good in the world, those are legitimate underpinnings. And if somebody comes at that from a Quaker point of view, that's okay. If they come at it from a humanistic point of view, that's okay. You know, love is the spirit of this church. And it has become a much deeper thing that we say every week and very true. And it's a legitimate way to go about things. It's not a kind of half-sell kind of thing. Love and service become the twin pillars, and that makes a good faith. So here, too, in Cambridge, we covenant to answer this call of love, to strive for justice and compassion, to nourish and serve our community and our world. The change of heart, our transformative nature as a faith, comes through our relational encounters and mutual support in action, a love in action, a love we metaphorically stand by, and a faith we stand by in shared community with one another and with our interdependent web of congregations and organizations, even when our lives might be on the line for doing so. We are transformed and converted by our faith to open our hearts and our doors and lose our fears together. So since that General Assembly rolled out the Standing on the Side of Love campaign in 2009, this is, uh, we're now seven years of congregations all over the country developing campaigns and working and standing on the side of love. It, when I was in Pasadena and the 
Supreme Court made that decision that invalidated uh, the the uh, not the the, the uh, marriage equality. It said that you, marriage equality was the the law in uh, for California, and then there was that proposition that came up and tried to overcome that. The, you could see that my congregation in Pasadena and other congregations struggling with the, the, the fear, fear and the, the, the feelings of, uh, of powerlessness, but fighting back, standing with demonstrations, standing on street corners with, with banners that says standing on the side of love. We've seen people stand on the side of love from Maine to Hawaii. We've seen people ch change in the process. Members who actually got out and held a sign changed. Changed in their attitudes toward gay and lesbian people come to accept bisexuality and transsexuality and really deep conversations and hear each other in the topic turns for what it means to be queer. We've stood on the side of love for refugees. And look, we've gone through and had the conversations in our congregations about what it means to stand on the side of love with refugees, to be, offer sanctuary and support, to go to the border, standing in witness with immigrant rights in Phoenix with really four or 5,000 people with the same golden rod t-shirts standing there together. Last year at our General Assembly in Portland we stood on the side of love with indigenous people and all the peoples of the Pacific Northwest as they struggled to stop the destruction of their environment, the beautiful waters and skies by corporations building coal building plants. In the last two years our congregations have stood on the side of love by asserting that black lives matter. We are training our eyes. We are training our eyes and opening our hearts to see the violence that is visited on African-American communities and youth of color. And recognize that we live in an inescapable network of mutuality and that we need what hurts one hurts us all. To stand on the side of love with people in struggle is to grow our connections to grow our vision of the possibilities for justice, to grow our compassion, and to grow our humanity. So to all my friends who asked, do I think people will care? Do I think people can change? I say yes. I have seen it. I have seen people change. I have changed myself. In congregations all across the country, we have joined together to stand on the side of love, and we've gotten hold of each other and change and embrace transformation. So my new thought to those people who ask me is perhaps you can't change people's minds unless you first change hearts. <laughs>